0: Go ahead and open your Bibles with me. We're going to be in Colossians still, working through this branded series. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be starting. And yes, we're going to make it into chapter 4 today. One verse. It's on page 984. So if you don't have a Bible but you want to follow along, hard copy. There are some Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can just pull that out from underneath. Promise the seat won't fall through. The person in front of you is safe. You can go ahead and open that to page 984 if you want to follow along. You can use the church app too. Bible's on there, or you can just use your phone, but if I see you texting. So as you can see, um, my name doesn't matter. Uh, (laughs) No, this is by design, Um, and so Greg has asked me to kind of just bring you along, share some stuff with you about what God is doing in and through Olive Branch and what God is doing with Olive Branch in and through my family's life. This is what we look like. That's right. I'm super lucky. She's beautiful, and she's here, so I'm not going to make eye contact with her. Um, But uh, by God's grace, in June next year, we plan to move our family to a closed country, you guessed it, in East Asia. Now, this country is a closed country. The government is hostile toward Christianity, and so I can't share many specifics with you. Uh, But what I can do is just suffice to say, we're going to go work with a small group, a people group there, um, that is yet unreached. So unreached, meaning 2% or less of this people group has heard in a transformative way the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, under 2%, this people group that we're going to be working with, there's about 3 million of them. They live up in in villages in the mountains. There are actually about almost half a million of them have moved to the city in which my family is going to be moving and living. But 0.24% of this people group has heard about Christ. Right, so a quarter of a percent of this three million people have heard the good news of Christ. That's a population about 700. So less than the population of Olive Branches, like average weekly attendance of this entire people group, has heard the gospel in a meaningful way. What we're going to be doing there? Um, no, I'll actually tell you some more about the people group. If you look on the right, um, this people group is very loving, very hospitable. The picture on the right, that's not that's my son. <laughs> She's holding. Um, They're very loving. They're very sweet. Far left, again, you can see. um, They're just so welcoming. My wife and I went on a walk with some friends of ours while we were up in one of the villages, and and, uh, Josiah just stayed back with the people in the village. They're just that warm. They've got this incredibly rich and long history. The Western world has known about them since Marco Polo. I'm not talking about the pool game. I'm talking about Mr. Polo. Not the inventor of the shirt, but like the explorer from way back when. So we've known about them for longer, or they, they go back even further than that, because as we all know, Western civilization isn't the definition of history. So their own personal history goes back further. But um, they, they live up in the mountains, and they live in pretty desperate poverty. Over 70% of these people have to barter or work or provide goods just for food. Um, So they they have a hard life. The government of the country in which they currently live uh, hates them. It's been actively working since the 50s to siege them and starve them out of their heritage and their culture out of where they live so that they can take the land from them and turn them and assimilate them into the majority population of that country. So they live a desperate, they live pretty difficult lives. And they are such a beautiful, hospitable, welcoming people, but we can't forget as beautiful as they are, as hospitable as they are, they are sinners in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's our our, um, calling by God in partnership with Dollar Branch. We're going to be moving over there next year to work among them. What we'll be doing there, we're going to be, for the first few years, working to study and hopefully learn and master two difficult languages um, because in order to get around the country, you have to learn one difficult language. And then in order to work with this people group in their heart language, you have to learn their also equally difficult language. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time in language learning, but also we're not just students there. We'll be working alongside our partners, this lovely couple on the right and Josiah's future wife. <laughs> I don't know why you laugh about that. We've already done like the betrothal ceremony, like they're going to get hitched. Um, you're still laughing. I'm not kidding. And, uh, but So we're going to be working alongside them. They've been there for about 20 years already working with this people group. So we're going to come in uh, guns blazing with our own ideas about what we're going to do. No, we're going to come in. We're going to work with them alongside some of the actual nationals who have, have heard and, and been changed by the good news to help equip and, and send out these people as church planters um, as well. I tell you this for one reason. One, to ensure you that Olive Branch is committed to fulfilling the Great Commission, and by God's grace, we get to partner with Olive Branch as members of Olive Branch and be sent out by Olive Branch on this journey. But I also, I have have some more reasons too. One, we're looking for partnership. And Greg was like, I'm telling you, you need to leverage your opportunity when you're in front of the congregation to tell them about their opportunity to partner with you. So I'm going to tell you about your opportunity to partner with us. Um, The first and foremost, most important thing that we could possibly use you for. Did you hear how I said that? (laughs) Use you? Okay. Nobody cares. All right. That's fine. We'll keep rolling. Is prayer. It's prayer. Can you imagine what could happen to the kingdom of darkness if over 700 people united their hearts with God's heart for the nations and prayed for the things God wants for that people group? So we want you first and foremost for prayer. We have a prayer newsletter that we send out. Um, So if you have time, remember, write it down in your notes to do this. On your way out, there's a, a, a wall with a map on it on the left on your way out. Stop and pick up every single couple or missionary's prayer card that's out there and start praying for them. As a member of Olive Branch, this is your blessing and responsibility that you get to participate in that. So you pick up our prayer card. You flip it around. It's got this beautiful picture, minus me, on it. I'm on it. But it's got that picture on it. I don't know who did that, but thank you. (laughs) Uh, Come to all of the services. But, uh, and then if you, if you... (laughs) If you flip it around, it's got our email. It says, contact them. And it's got our email on it. And you just it's a secure email. You send us your email and you say, hey, this is my name. If you've got one of those funky Starfinder 7000 at yahoo.com emails and it doesn't have your name in it, which is very unprofessional, by the way, put your name in it. Um, <laughs> that's not in the notes. You send that to us and you say, hey, this is my name. Sign me up for your prayer newsletter. I want to be a part of that. We can start sending you our our newsletter. We, We want to have over 365 committed, invested, intentional prayer partners before we leave next June. That's not going to happen without you guys, our family, partnering with us in that. Secondly, clearly I've not given you all the information about what we're going to be doing there, and I can't in this kind of a setting. So you take that same prayer card that you're already going to take, right, and then you flip that around, you see the email, same email, send us an email and say, hey, This is my name, I would love to meet with you, here's my availability, let's get together and talk. Here's my small group meetings night, let's get together and talk, share with my small group what's going on. That way we can get together with you, we can share what God's laid on our hearts, we can be significantly more specific, and we can find out how exactly God is going to maybe call you to partner with our ministry overseas. Sound cool? All right, good. All right, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump into the text after that. Heavenly Father, it is just so humbling to think of how you, this perfect God, could love us, these sinful, chosen enemies of you, Lord, who chose to defy you, who chose to wrong you, who chose to break the relationship with you, that you would love us so much that you would send your son Christ to live a perfect life that we are incapable of living, to die the most gruesome death that we deserve to die in our place. And then on our behalf to raise three days later from the dead in victory over our sin and our death, that we might be reunited with you in a relationship even better than the one we broke originally. So Heavenly Father, we pray that this time would be a time of equipping a time of mobilizing ourselves, Lord, a time of sharpening the tools you've given us, that that gospel would transcend and brand not just our private life, but our Monday through Friday, our life outside of this building, Father, that we would become a people united in your name and defined by your characteristics. It's in your name we pray. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, like I've told you a million times, but if you've forgotten, where are we? You guys are so good. I can hear you Facebook Live. I can't. Um, But we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there's no partiality. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So we have two audiences to whom uh, Paul is writing right now that we get to partake in. We have the first audience, which we'll define as slaves, because that's the way the Bible says it. And then we have the second audience defined as masters. So the first one, the slaves, that's a heavy word in our culture, slaves. And so I want to take a second to sort of just differentiate and and better flesh out to find what we're actually talking about when we say slaves in this particular context in this text. What I'm not talking about is a people group who've been subjugated by a larger society who were kidnapped or forced out of by force and intimidation and kidnapping Out of their homeland, home culture, everything they knew, everything which was familiar to them were thrown on a boat, kept below deck or in in horrid conditions, shipped across an entire ocean to a land they've never seen or heard of or didn't even know existed, subjugated by people who speak a language they don't understand, sold as if they were produce or simple goods, and then forced by intimidation and physical, emotional, and other forms of violence against them to live the rest of their lives serving somebody they've never met who clearly doesn't care about them beyond the service they might be able to render for whatever time they can. That's American slavery. That is not what I'm talking about. And we should never try and use a passage like we're going to be looking at today as a way to try and make it sound like, well, slaves should always obey. Because when we talk about slavery like that, or we talk about people whose parents were conned or tricked or de- deliberately lied to and, and told that their child would have a better life in the city if they would just sell their children to these people who will give them an opportunity to an education and a living and then are trafficked humans into other places and and, and Cultures made to do things no one should ever be made to do, as we experience in this world today, that too is not in any way at all what Paul is talking about when he says slaves. I'm a little testy right now, because when you do something like that, you violate and you try to negate and you defame the image of God, because every human being is an image bearer of our God. Paul is using a word in the Greek, it's doulos, and it does translate as bondservant, as we read on the screen. It translates as slave. Now, the bondservant is different. It's, it's more appropriately translated, I think, um, and, and, and in this context. What we're talking about is people who were born into such poverty that they, they, they themselves sold themselves into service. To someone else or somebody who accrued so much debt, there was no way that they could possibly pay it off, and so the, the one to whom they owed the debt, they, they started working in servitude, giving up everything that they had to pay off the debt, or to work under the, the ownership of their now master. Does that make sense? So Paul actually uses this word "do loss" in reference to himself. In Galatians 1:10, he's, he references himself, he says, "I am a slave of Christ." Peter also uses the term slave of Christ in description of himself. And in James chapter one, verse one, we see James, the brother of Christ, saying, I am a slave of God. And so you even see Christians utilize this word to say, my will is not my own. My life does not belong to me. My life has been purchased and I now serve Christ. So when Paul here is saying, hey, slaves, he's saying, hey, those whose lives have been purchased, those whose wills are not their own. So we're not saying like, Oh, slave is something somebody aspires to be. Like, we're not, like, there was no father who, who kneels down to his little son and says, you know, Petros, you could be anything you want to be when you grow up in this society. The sky's the limit. And little Petros goes, I want to be a slave when I grow up. Like, that doesn't happen in this culture. What, what, what we're talking to is still, it's a hard life. It's still not something somebody would choose first and foremost beyond anything. So it's still difficult. But what we're looking at here in Paul's text is a spectrum of work from the lowest position possible to the highest position possible, as we'll see later on. And so Paul is hitting from the very low end of the spectrum in in verse 22, saying, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the overarching theme that Paul is going to give to the slaves is, guys, obey in everything. He says, obey your earthly masters or those masters according to the flesh and everything. And he says, serve them with sincerity. Serve with a sincerity of heart. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Out of fear. Work as for the Lord. In 23, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So we have this idea that we should serve with sincerity from the, from the very core of our, our being, that Christ is transforming. When we become Christians, suddenly we understand that our work is no longer for us or for the company for whom we work. Our work is for the Lord. And so we serve with sincerity. We, we are serving because we represent Christ, because our identity is in Christ. Now, I know dudes have this stereotypical issue, and I'm pretty sure some of you arenas also have this, where your work becomes your identity. So you do everything you can at work. You work as hard as you can to be successful and do well because your identity is wrapped up in your job. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. He's actually warning against this. He says, you serve the Lord. Now, yeah, work heartily, whatever you do, as for the Lord and not for men, but it's because you know that from the Lord you'll receive your payment of inheritance. And so we, we work for Christ even in our nine to five. We represent Christ. Our work represents Christ. That's why as Christians we work as hard as we can to do as well as we can in everything. It's like the hinge verse from where Paul's describing what how we should we should act and clothe ourselves into this these rules for Christian living. He says whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So we have this understanding even even at the lowest end of the spectrum. So um, employees, whether you're a teacher, whether you um, work, whether you bust tables, work heartily as for the Lord. Because you see in verse 317, the way he sets this up, As he's saying, everything you do, whether in word or deed, you're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So your work and your work ethic represents Jesus to the world around you. And then in 23, you don't just work on behalf of Jesus and represent Jesus. You're working heartily at everything you do because you know that you work for Jesus. Jesus. So in everything you do, work heartily. Do everything they ask you to do, as long as it lines up with what Christ would have for you, because ultimately we obey Christ, not men. But we work heartily because we understand it's for the Lord. Basically, there's no such thing in the Christian life as good enough for government work, even if you work for the government. Anybody here work for the city of Corona? I'd like, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand if you do. Streets are a mess. But anyway, work heartily as for the Lord. No such thing as good enough for government work. There's also no such thing as good enough is good enough. Have you heard that one? Have you said that one? Don't raise your hand. Good enough is good enough. In a shop I used to work in, we had the saying perfection is the goal, excellence will be tolerated. It was stressful. But don't you kind of think maybe that would actually not to be overbearing, be maybe a good philosophy? Hey, you know what? I represent Christ. I want people to ask me why I work so hard. What if people came to you and asked you why your work quality was so high, why you worked so hard, why you did such a good job, and you had the opportunity to say, because I'm not working for me, I'm not working for my boss, what I do represents Christ's effect on my life. And Christ didn't just do a halfway job in rescuing me. He did the full thing. There were no shortcuts. Imagine that opportunity. No, no more of this, oh yeah, I'll just do enough to get by like a people pleaser. You know those people who try and look busy, but they're not actually that busy? The ones who at work, you know who I'm talking about. They tell you how busy they are, and you like look at their work and you're like, you're not that busy. You're telling me you're that busy, but you're not that busy. The people who try and look like they're working, they do just enough to get by. Like if you're supposed to clock in at 9 and you know that at 9.15, the time punch docks you down to 9.30, but if you punch in at 9.14, it says you clocked in at 9, so you get there at 9.13, punch in at 9.14, and it looks like you started at 9. Those people, I know none of you are those people. I'm just saying you know those people. That's what he's talking about as a people pleaser, is eye service. That, that first son Greg was talking about in last, last week's sermon where he says the father comes to him and says hey I need you to work in the field and he goes I'll do that and then doesn't that's like this eye service this kind of looking busy not doing what they're supposed to be doing because they don't care so slaves as harsh employees, as harsh as you think your conditions are, obey those who are your earthly masters and everything. Not simply so that you look like you're working, not simply so that you can climb the scale of those people who are always uh, brown nosing, doing enough and trying to get noticed, trying to steal credit from other people so that they can move up the ranks as these people pleasers, trying to just hang out with the manager all the time. He says, don't work like that, but work with a sincerity of heart. And this is why. We have a promise of payment. No matter how harsh as employees are, our life may be. No matter how harsh as employee you think your conditions are, you have this promise and this is why you can continue to persevere. We work hardly in everything we do as for the Lord and not for men. And then in verse 24, because we know that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. See, you may not think this, but in your job, you are serving Christ. You have the opportunity to make Christ known and even in your job as dull as yours may be or as as difficult as you think your job is you still in that have the promise of an eternity spent with Christ in glory and as Paul says about his suffering in 1 Corinthians 4 all of that doesn't even compare the pain to the glory that we get to experience in heaven with Christ Whatever we're going through, whatever we're trying to endure, persevere through, we understand that for the Christian slave in this situation, no matter your your station in life, the inheritance is our reward. And then also we have this encouraging word in verse 25. We have promise of payment for the wrongdoer. He says in 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. You see, as a slave, you understood, one, there was no union that could go to the, the master union and try and debate and haggle work hours, or would represent you in the courts, or would make sure you have a sweet retirement to fall back on. As a slave, you had no representation. And so if you tried to take your master to court, you know, the very guy who literally and legally owned your life, guess who the judge is frequently going, if not always, going to side with? You guessed it, The master. And so even in this situation, in this day and age, even if your master was brutal, was over you and and authoritative in a way that wasn't honoring Christ, you knew that even if you took him to the court, the judge would side with the master. You had no representation. All the partiality in that that system went toward the owner, not toward the owned. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is promising, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality. This rings with another passage from James in chapter 5. James really finishes this book strong. I I always refer to this as like the shout chorus because he doesn't just like fade out. He just goes full bore to the end. In chapter 5, he's just transitioning from, he's just used this passage about work and knowing that you should consult God in your work plans and and what you want to do. And so even if you know that you should and you don't do it, you need to understand that is sin not consulting God for work. And then he turns to the wealthy, the rich, the people who've built their esteem, who've built their wealth, who've built their status of life on the backs of other people. He says this in chapter five. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You probably won't hear that on the Caleb encouraging verse of the day. Just saying that. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters who've reached have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned. You've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now do you hear that little bit right there? The attitude of the Christian and service who've been fraudded, who've been condemned, who's been murdered, he does not resist you. Because that person is holding on to the promise that he gets the inheritance as a servant of Christ. And then Paul goes, or James goes on. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So now he's talking to the ones who've been oppressed, who've been fraudding. Be patient. Wait for the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See this imagery. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This imagery that we get here um, matches exactly what Paul is saying. Hey, guys. The wrongdoer will be paid back in full for what he's done. Jesus Christ is the Lord, and then you see—you see in James, uh, you see—you see the judge is has his findings, has his his um, declaration, and his hand is on the door. He is coming in the courtroom. And so for those of you who've been oppressed, who are oppressed, those of you who are thinking, my work situation is awful, I wish something would happen to this person, understand that Christ will judge their sin with precision, not partiality. Nobody gets off easy when it comes to sin. So you have this promise that Paul is giving these people. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done this imagery of Christ coming in to judge. Both gives a promise that there will be justice on your behalf and you will receive a rich reward for serving Christ. And now we, we, we turn our focus to the masters and Paul's big thrust for the masters in this public sector is, guys, live a life that's mastered by Christ. Remember that you too have a master in heaven. Live mastered. Now the word for master here is, I think it's interesting. It's kurios, derived from kurios, which um, if you see in verse 24 where, where Paul is saying, you are serving the Lord Christ, same word, kurios. It's the, the, it translates clearly as master. It translates as, as Lord. When Paul is on the road to Damascus and knocked off his donkey, um, he, he he cries out, who are you, Lord. He's using the same word. So what we have is this word that just oozes authority. It oozes esteem. This word that basically can be translated, hey, you with authority. So in today's world, um, you'd start like middle management. All the middle managers shift leads, store assistant managers, if you're a Starbies, uh employee, and all the way up to boss or owner. Live a life that exudes that you have been mastered by Christ. He says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So we have this idea of these people with authority. Live a life that's been mastered. So the first thrust of what a life as a master that looks like Christ, that's been branded by Christ, Paul says, be just. Don't be partial. Don't be. Play favorites. Be just. Justly and fairly. No one person is better than the other. Treat those below you as if they're image bearers of Christ. Because guess what? They are. Be just. We have this image in Micah chapter 6. Of, of this haughty Israel who's wealthy and, and they're putting their trust in, in their esteem and in their wealth. And oh yeah, that's right, we gotta go to God too. So they ask this question, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of, r- of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Or to put it poetically, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And Micah just responds, he's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Be somebody who loves and does justice, who loves to be kind be somebody whose life is marked by a humble walk with their maker and master. It isn't even necessarily about lowering yourself, right? We've discussed there is order for a reason. We have positions for a reason. What we're talking about here with masters, be just, be fair, walk humbly with God, is not just not, not lowering yourself down to their level, but actually raising them up. Give those who've never had a voice a voice. Care for those who aren't able to care for themselves. Represent those who've never had representation. Do justice. Be just. Respond to people fairly. Don't show partiality. And in that, as masters, that's how we, or you, serve God. Ultimately, that's exactly what your life is. Remember that you too are a bondservant. He says, knowing that you have also have a master in heaven. Remember that you are a bondservant, you're a slave, and thus be a display of your master's grace. We all know the story of the guy who had thousands of years of debt. The guy forgave him. He went out and he started choking a guy who had a, dollar's worth, a day's worth of debt. Don't be that guy. Remember that you too have a master. Now in Philippians chapter 2, we have a great expression of this. The whole chapter really is pretty good, so I'd recommend you read the whole chapter. Um, It takes like three minutes, or just memorize it. It takes like three weeks. So in verse 5 he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held tightly, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can I just point out here, if Christ is willing enough to let go of his, his glory, his deity, to come down that man might be saved, perhaps you might be willing as a Christian, to let go of your authority and your name badge and humble yourself that others might be saved. Because he says this in verse nine, because of that humility, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your position as middle management or up Your position, even as a slave, should be leveraged in such a way that people come to Christ and give glory to God the Father. Your position is something that God gave you to further his kingdom. Remember, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what are you doing with your position? Now, none of this might make any sense to you if you don't understand this truth. You, by yourself, seeking your own life, your own authority, from when you were a child, broke the relationship you had with your maker. And when you did that, when you chose yourself, when you chose to not follow God, when you sinned and walked away, you enslaved yourself to sin. No longer being able to say no to the passions of your own flesh that you think up. No longer being able to say no to the ways of the world. No matter how good a life you think you're living, if you are apart from Christ, you are in sin. You are a slave to sin. And there's a chasm between you and a right relationship with God. But God, in his great mercy, with the great love with which he loved you, in his grace, made a way. He so loved you that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to, to earth, as we just read in Philippians, to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, to die a gruesome death that we deserve to die, and to raise three days later in victory over our sin, which enslaves, and our death, which is the punishment for it, to give us an opportunity at a new life with Christ. And when we step into that, when we come to that reality, and we don't just mentally say, yeah, that sounds cool, but in our heart of hearts, we actually grasp that truth and give our life to Christ, we're made new. And with that comes this new mentality. And, and in Colossians 3, that he, Paul just lays this out. If then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Don't set your mind on the things of the earth. Set your mind on the things above with Christ at the right hand of God who is your life. And once you do that, once you start thinking on the things of Christ, once you start thinking on the things that God would have you do for your life, suddenly these things of your old life, you start to literally want to put them to death. You want to kill your selfish ambition. You want to kill these passions of your flesh. You no longer want to be known or marked or branded by the things of the world. And so you start taking these off. And then in that, in that progress, you start inching further and further from the things of the world and now you're putting on things that God would have you. So as those who've been called by God holy and dearly loved, now you're clothing yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. You literally put up with each other and forgive each other because Christ forgave you and puts up with you. You suddenly are clothed in the peace of Christ no matter what situation of life you live in, whether you're a master or an owner and stressed by your business and your employees or you're an employee stressed by your work, you have the peace of Christ knowing that there is something better for you. And then all that is that com- is, is put together and, and wound perfectly and united by the love of God. Suddenly you start to speak differently and then your relationships start to change. A husband and a wife start to relate differently because our goal is to grow each other closer to Christ. And in doing that, we grow closer together. Suddenly, children and parents, parents and children, start to relate differently because we have this heavenly mindset. Now we start relating differently because of the things we've taken off and put on. Now we realize we're a representation of God's authority to our children. And as children, we realize in our representation of how we respond to our parents, we're supposed to be showing how we respond to Christ. And so authority and obedience starts to look different in the house. And then it moves out of the house into the crowd, into the workspace. And suddenly, your employment looks different. I have this job because Christ wants me to have this job so that I can make Christ known. See, it all flows out of your understanding of the gospel. And it's not just for one class. It's not just for one people group. It's for all the people of the world. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is talking. He's telling a story to try and communicate the truth of the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. You see, this guy didn't own the field in the beginning. This guy is very likely an alien, someone from a foreign land, come to try and meek out a living, try and meek out an existence in Israel, plowing probably the edge portion or trying to pick up whatever the original harvesters have left. And in that field, he finds a treasure. He goes and he sells everything he has. He gives up his entire life just so he can possess that treasure He goes on, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went, sold all that he had and bought it. So this guy is esteemed. This guy has wealth. This guy can travel the world in search of these fine things. And he finds this one pearl worth so much to him that he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can buy it. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom for the poor and the wealthy, for the weak and the powerful. Because we realize that the kingdom of God is for everyone. And and in Christ, there's no longer a Jew. There's no longer Scythian. There's no longer slave. There's no longer free. There's no longer male. There's no longer female. But Christ is all and Christ is in all. The kingdom of heaven is for everyone. Of every position, every station of life. And we all understand that once we're members of the kingdom, we're members of the family. When you become a Christian, you become a child Of God and that affects every aspect of our life may it be true not just in confession but in our lives let's pray Heavenly Father we are so grateful that we can even relate to you as our Father Lord, we are so grateful that in your great love, your overwhelming love, that you would seek us out. You would remove the smoke screens. You would tear down the walls that we ourselves have built, that you could pursue us, that you could redeem us to become followers of you. And Lord, I pray that that truth wouldn't just change our Sunday mornings, but Lord, that that truth would transcend from our minds to our hearts, from our hearts to our hands and from our hands to those around us, that we could be united as family members of God, that we could be washed by your blood, that we could be saved by your act, and that we could give our lives, no matter what the station, no matter what the position, to serving your kingdom and making you known. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.